All right, so welcome to the new year. Um, Aaron did a wonderful, wonderful job last week on the practicalities of Sabbath. I don't know how many of you actually are saying, I'm gonna, what can I do to add that into my repertoire of spiritual disciplines? But I think it is important, and I think it's a wonderful way to have started the year by looking at Sabbath rather than all the action. Let's start by, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he makes me lie down. That's kind of where we started. Before anything else, he makes me lie down. So I want to remind us, these next few weeks, I'm going to remind us of who we are, what we're about, why we're doing what we're doing, um, so that there's hopefully continually clarity to why we're doing what we're doing, and hopefully slowly moving us along um, this journey of doing what God wants us to do. And so our mission that we've stated as a church over the last number of years is that we want to live as disciples of Jesus within the kingdom of God in Los Angeles. And I think over the next few weeks, I'm going to solidify some of that, add to that what we're about, why we're, why we're doing it, why we're not doing other things, why we're doing these things. In the light of that, as in the Bible, as in the practice of the church, there's a lot of repetition. Mostly there's repetition because we, most of us are slow to learn. Have you noticed that? We don't pick up the things of God really quickly. They take repetition, do it over and over and over until it becomes part of who we are. Um, and to realize that we also live within a culture where the church has lost its influence to a large extent. The church is shrinking right across the world. There are... Three and a half thousand churches, I think, closing every year in the United States. Um, there are a lot being planted, most of which closed down as well. Um, so the, the, the church is in a, in, a, in a very awkward spot in this current culture, this current generation that we find ourselves. The church has moved from the center of the town to the slums, the outskirts of the town. No one's really interested. Um, I was sitting, uh, I took Tehila somewhere today, and then I, I went to Pete's to read. And I was sitting there and two ladies over here and they were reading tarot cards and doing all the spiritual thing and reading up all their spiritual books on seances. And that was very interesting. You wouldn't, have, you wouldn't see that a number of years ago. Well, that was something that was kept in the shadows. Now it's Christianity that's being kept in the shadows. Everything else is out in the open. And so how do we keep moving forward as community, as believers, as children of God to be impactful in our society at this point in time um, when you use maps anyone use maps on their phone you're driving if you take a wrong turn it's you know rerouting you and sometimes we have to be rerouted on our journey with Jesus because we go of course or things get in our way and we have to move and we have to be rerouted back and so I'm hoping in the next few weeks as part of that rerouting us getting us back to basics You've heard me say many times the story of Jack Nicklaus, the, the greatest golfer that ever lived. Every year, and when he was at the heart of his game, he'd go to his coach and he'd say, teach me the game of golf. And the coach would say, well, this is how you grip a club. And this is how you swing. And this is how I go through all the basics. Because sometimes we forget those things. And so part of these next few weeks is putting us in to that realm again. It's helping us to look at words that we use and bandy around 
Words like gospel and kingdom and Bible and disciple and church and community and obedience and witness and mission. And say, what do those truly mean to us as community in this world right now? What do those mean? Because they've become so overused, we forget them. Um, if you read the letters to the churches, um, Paul writing to the churches or Peter writing to the churches or the book of Hebrews or John, you, you see that they always begin... And remind people of who they are in Jesus. They give theology. And then say, this is what it means. This is then how you should live in the light of this. There's always this reminder. And so that's what we're going to be doing a little bit. Two thoughts that I would like you to think on as we go through these few weeks. Actually, as we go along. One is this. And it's asking of yourself. Are you more into church community than you are into Jesus? Because it's possible to us for really love community, love one another, love being together, love doing things together, that actually we can lose connection with the head of the community. But to be reminded that we are here because of Jesus. Jesus is the one who set his affection upon us. Jesus is the one who saved us, given us new life, new birth, set us on a new course, introduced us to his father to be able to call sons and daughters, etc., etc. And in that, we, we have community built around that rather than we build community around the idea of community. Make sense? Second thing is to see, are we just in the activity of church going rather than in the process of growing in Christ. And this is an important part of doing that. So as we see in culture, and this is, this is statistically being looked at, so much of the church in Western culture, predominantly now in the United States, because Europe is way, way further down the road past, is that Christianity became cultural. It's what we did. We are, we are not Muslim. We are Christian. But it's not necessarily I am receiving and living in the new birth of Jesus. I am a cultural Christian. And what a cultural Christian does is go to church. I have a friend who's a culturally Jewish. He identifies as a Jew, but he has no Jewish practices whatsoever. Except for maybe Yom Kippur once a year they do something. He's a cultural Jew. You find that in the Islamic community. They're cultural Islams. So they're not practicing and I just want us to think through that as part of our walk with Jesus and so we're going to start and I'm most probably only get to this next week because I want to read something and then we'll be done for today is let's look at what Jesus actually said to the church when he left and gave them instructions because that's a good place to start don't you think what did Jesus say to the, the disciples, to the apostles, this is what I'm leaving you to do. And we'll start there and then we will move backwards and forwards around that to help us see it. So let's read one or two scriptures just as a start. And then I'll, I'm going to read a, from a book. Ephesians, I'm going to start with this scripture. Ephesians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 11. His, Jesus, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, 
that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. You see that? It's through the church. And that must be an overarching, just an understanding that God to impact the world is going to work through the church. Now we have to, we're going to redefine, well not redefine, we're going to look at what does that, what does church mean so that we know what we're talking about. Because church has just a multiple amount of meanings. Jump to Matthew 28, famous text, starting in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, this is after the resurrection, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they saw the resurrected Jesus. The Jesus that they had seen crucified and died, buried. Jesus rose again has been spending time with them, teaching them. This Jesus, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Actually, one of the key aspects of just being a follower of Jesus, when we encounter the resurrected Jesus, one of the first things it should be is that we worship. It's not about whether we're in church or what it's, we worship. With doubt, and some doubted. I love that verse. And some doubted. Just carry on with the point. Then Jesus said to them, and we're going to talk about this more in detail next week. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What do we know that text as? The Great Commission. It is the Great Commission. So we're going to come back to it next week. We're going to unpack it a little bit, looking at a portion in Luke, a portion in Acts, and see what that all means. And I'm going to read to you now, if, if I may, from this book called The Great Omission, Dallas Willard. And it's, it's the introduction. We're not even, it's not even getting to the chapters. It's just the introduction. Is that all right? So sit back. It's a few pages. And just listen. You have to close your eyes to... Um, Help you focus. Wonderful. Don't fall asleep if you do. And fall out the window. We'll pray for you to be raised from the dead. Just like Paul did. You all okay? All right. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And so sings the grand old Christmas carol with the implication that now... With the coming of Jesus into our world and our lives, things are going to be really different. And that theme is sustained through the ages up to the present. No knowledgeable person can think anything else. Transformation into goodness is what the good news is all about, isn't it? But there is a great deal of disappointment expressed today about the character and the effects of Christian people about Christian institutions and, at least by implication, about the Christian faith and understanding of reality. Most of the disappointment comes from Christians themselves who find that what they profess just isn't working. Not for themselves nor, so far as they can see, for those around them. What they have found, at least, does not exceed all expectations, as the standard evaluation form says. Disappointment books form a subcategory of Christian publishing. Self-flagellation has not disappeared from the Christian repertoire. 
But the disappointment also comes from those who merely stand apart from visible Christianity. Um, uh, as well as from those who openly oppose it. These people often beat Christians with their own stick, criticizing them in terms that Jesus himself provides. There is an obvious great disparity between, on the one hand, the hopeful life expressed in Jesus, found real in the Bible, and in many shining examples from among his followers, and on the other hand, the actual day-to-day behavior in a life and social presence of most of those who now profess adherence to him. The question must arise, why the great disparity? Is it caused by something built into the very nature of Jesus and what he taught and brought to humankind? Or is it the result of inessential factors that attach themselves to Christian institutions and people as they journey through time? Are we in a period when both rank and file Christians and most of their leaders have for some reason missed the main point? If your neighbor is having trouble with his automobile, you might think he just has a lemon, and you may be right. But if you found that he was supplementing his gasoline with a quart of water now and then, you would not blame the car or its maker for it, for it not running or for running in fits and starts. You would say that the car was not built to work under the conditions imposed by the owner. And you would certainly advise him to put only the appropriate kind of fuel in the tank. After some restorative work, perhaps the car would then run fine. We must approach current disappointments about the walk with Christ in a similar way. It too is not meant to run on just anything you may give it. If it doesn't work at all, or only in fits and starts, that is because we do not give ourselves to it in a way that allows our lives to be taken over by it. Perhaps we were never being told what to do. We are misinformed about our part in eternal living. Or we just have learned the faith and practice of some group we have fallen in with, and not that of Jesus himself. Or maybe we've heard something that is right on with Jesus himself but misunderstood it, a dilemma that tends to produce good Pharisees or legalists, which is a really hard life. Or perhaps we thought the way we have heard of seemed too costly, and we have tried to economize, supplying a quart of moralistic or religious water now and then. Now we know that the car of Christianity can run, and run gloriously, in every kind of external circumstance. We have seen it, or at least anyone who wishes to can see it, merely by looking past the caricatures and partial presentations at Jesus himself and at the many manifestations of him in events and personalities throughout history and in our world today. He is simply the brightest spot in the human scene. There is no real competition. Even anti-Christians judge and condemn Christians in terms of Jesus and what he said. He is not really hidden, but for all his manifest presence in our world, he must be sought. That is part of his plan and for our benefit. If we do seek him, he will certainly find us, and then we ever more deeply find him. That is the blessed existence of the disciple of Jesus who continually grows in the grace, 
and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's from 2 Peter. But just there is the problem. Who among Christians today is a disciple of Jesus? In any substantive sense of the word disciple. A disciple is a learner, a student, an apprentice, a practitioner, even if only a beginner. The New Testament literature, which must be allowed to define our terms if we are ever going to get our bearings in the way with Christ, makes this clear. In that context, disciples of Jesus are people who do not just profess certain views as their own, but apply their growing understanding of life in the kingdom of the heavens to every aspect of their life on earth. We all okay, Saul? Making sense? In contrast, the governing assumption today among professing Christians is that we can be Christians forever and never become disciples. Not even in heaven, it seems. For who would need it there? That is the accepted teaching now. Check it out wherever you are. And this, with its various consequences, is the great omission from the Great Commission, in which the great disparity is firmly rooted. As long as the great omission is permitted or sustained, the great disparity will flourish in individual lives as well as in Christian groups and movements. Conversely, if we cut the root in the great omission, the great disparity will wither as it has repeatedly done in times past. No need to fight it. Just stop feeding it. Jesus told us explicitly what to do. We have a manual, just like the car owner. He told us, as disciples, to make disciples. Not converts to Christianity, nor to some particular faith and practice. He did not tell us to arrange for people to get in or make the cut after they die, nor to eliminate the various brutal forms of injustice, nor to produce mainstream successful churches. These are all good things, and he had something to say about all of them. And they will certainly happen if, but only if, we are his constant apprentices and do make constant apprentices what he told us to be and do. If we just do this, it will little matter what else we do or do not do. Once we who are disciples have assisted others with becoming disciples of Jesus, not of us, we can gather them in ordinary life situations under the supernatural Trinitarian presence, forming a new kind of social unit never before seen on earth. These disciples are his called out ones, his ecclesia. Their walk is already in heaven, Philippians chapter 3, because heaven is in action where they are. Now it is these people who can be taught to observe all things, whatever I have commanded you. In becoming his students, students or apprentices, they have agreed to be taught and the resources are available so that they can methodically go about doing it. This reliably yields the life that proves to exceed all expectations. Jesus put it this way to his little group of immediate followers. I have, given say, I have been given say of all things in, in heaven and earth. This is, he's paraphrasing the Great Commission. As you go, therefore, make disciples of all kinds of people. Submerge them in Trinitarian presence and show them how to do everything I have commanded. And now look, 
I am with you every minute until the job is done. We see in world history the results of a small number of his disciples simply doing what he said with no omission. People in Western churches and especially in North America usually assume without thinking that the Great Commission of Jesus is something to be carried out in other countries. This is caused in part by the use of nations to translate the word ethnos when a better translation might be our contemporary ethnic groups or just people of every kind. But this leads in practice to not treating our kind of people as the ones to be led into discipleship to Jesus. Some actually think that we don't need it because we are basically right to begin with. But in fact, the primary mission field for the Great Commission today, and this has been done by study after study after study, is made up of the churches in Europe and North America. Now read that one again. But in fact, the primary mission field for the Great Commission today is made up of the churches in Europe and North America. Isn't that scary? It's frightening. That is where the great disparity is most visible and from where it threatens to spread to the rest of the world. Our responsibility is to implement the Great Commission right where we are, not just, ra- not just to raise efforts to do it elsewhere. And if we don't, it won't even be implemented over there. It is a tragic error to think that Jesus was telling us as he left to start churches, as that is understood today. From time to time, starting a church may be appropriate, but his aim for us is much greater than that. He wants us to establish beachheads or bases of operation for the kingdom of God wherever we are. In this way, God's promise to Abraham that in him and in his seed, all peoples on earth would be blessed, this is from Genesis 12, is carried forward towards its realization. The outward effect of this life in Christ is perpetual moral revolution until the purpose of humanity on earth is completed. As disciples of Jesus, we today are a part of God's world project. But realization of that project, it must never be forgotten, is the effect, not the life itself. The mission naturally flows from the life. It is not an afterthought or something we might overlook to or omit as we live the life. The eternal life from which many profound and glorious effects flow is interactive relationship with God and with his son Jesus within the abiding ambience of the Holy Spirit. Eternal life is the kingdom walk where in seamless unity we do justice, love kindness and walk carefully with our God, which is a great prophetic word to God's people from the book of Micah. We learn to walk this way through apprenticeship to Jesus. His school is always in session. We need to emphasize that the great omission from the Great Commission is not obedience to Christ, but discipleship, apprenticeship to Him. Through discipleship, obedience will take care of itself. And we will also escape the snares of judgmentalism and legalism, whether directed towards ourselves or toward others. Now, some might be shocked to hear that what the church, the disciples gathered, 
really needs is not more people, more money, better buildings or programs, more education or more prestige. Christ gathered people. The church has always been at its best when it had little or none of these. All it needs to fulfill Christ's purposes on earth is the quality of life he makes real in the life of his disciples. Given that quality, the church will prosper from everything that comes its way as it makes clear and available on earth the life that is life indeed. There will, be, there will always be many battles to fight, but the brooding presence of the great disparity and the illusion that it is all that Christ has to offer humanity will not be one of them. Last bit. So the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. Will they break out of the churches to be his church? To be without human force or violence, his mighty force for good on earth, drawing the churches after them toward the eternal purposes of God. And on its own scale, there is no greater issue facing the individual human being, Christian or not. Last paragraph. What Jesus expects us to do is not complicated or obscure. In some cases, it will require that we change what we have been doing. But the Great Commission, his plan for spiritual formation, church growth and world service is pretty obvious. Let's just do it. He will provide all the teaching and support we need. Remember, when all else fails, follow the instructions. Pretty good, eh? Taking a whole lot of thoughts and distilling it into just one little introduction to help us maybe focus. Now, I might copy and send it out to you so you can read it again. But in some way, this captures what I believe what we are doing, what we're doing, and why we're doing it. Uh, I say this hesitantly because some people don't like it, but when pastors go to pastors' gatherings... It's like the first sort of questions are, you know, how big is, tell us about your church. How big is it? How much money you got? Who's moving? How this, you know, it's those sort of questions. It's like, who's got comparison and competition? It happens all the time, even among friends. So my standard response became a joke. But as I thought about it, there's some, uh, 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 it's become real to me. People say, well, tell us about Mercy Town. And I say, well... It's like a slow, muddy river. Look at you. It's, like, it's so out of the vein of what everyone else is saying. Because if you have 100 people, everyone says they have 150. If they have 500, they say they have 700. I mean, it's just, that's life. It's like a slow, muddy river. You know, people don't know what to do with that. And I just say, you know, we move along at a very slow pace. Trying to live out the life of Jesus. And mostly it's muddy. But we're hoping that as we go along, the Holy Spirit starts to clear that mud. And we become this beautiful, free-flowing, crystal clear river of water of life to the places that we go. That's what I see our church doing. 
That's what I'm asking you to embrace and remind us of why we're doing that. Because it's actually what Jesus asked us to do. You know, there's many references in the Bible to his people being like river, a river healing to the nations. You know, a little river, a little muddy river has gone to Nicaragua, Haiti, Philippines, Sri Lanka, little muddy river. Because if we make ourselves available to what God wants to do, He will use us. Whether it's to those places or whether it's next door to your neighbor. It applies to us. And I want to unpack some of that next week a little bit. Looking at the Great Commission, looking at the, that in Acts and what it began to look like. But I'm, I'm a, I think my request is that you would go before Jesus and say, Jesus, would you show me? Show me the adjustments. Show me places where you want me to make changes. Where you asking me to drop things. Where you asking me to pick up new things. Asking me, Jesus, how can I be this light in the place where I work, the place where I play, the place where I eat, the place... That we are those wherever we go. So that the light of Jesus shines through not your words of Jesus is Lord to every person that you speak to. Because the baristas will stop serving you. I promise you. But when you are kind and say thank you. And they make you a good coffee and you go back and say that was a really good coffee. They will appreciate it. Who, who are you? Yep. There's a barista at Intelligentsia who watched a conversation between Justin and I. He said to Justin, what was that about? It sounded very interesting. And he's sort of on, sort of church, whatever. I went in the other day, he said, you're the guy that's always with Justin. What is it? We had this conversation. You've got to live it where you are. I'm encouraging us to do that. When I look around this room, I don't see anybody here that just has just little oodles of time on their hands. Anybody? It's like, man, it's got hours a day. I've got nothing to do. Let me go sit in a coffee shop and talk to the barista. Maybe me. Enjoy. But you do go into the coffee shop. And you do have neighbors. And you do have work colleagues. And, you some, and some of you have schoolmates and whatever. Those people can experience you and Jesus in you. Without you trying to hit them over the head of the Bible. Because character is formed in you. And you are loving and you are kind and you are generous and you are open. You are just wonderful. We can do that. We can make a difference. And that's more exciting than... Wow, we had 300 people at church today. Get 300 people, that's also great. But if we have 300 people out there actually impacting their world, and then coming back and telling the tales of... So my, my book is going to be called Promote, Self-Promotion. It's going to be called Slow Muddy River, Tales from the Church. Like, imagine, and tell stories that have come through our community just doing... Wonderful things. 
It's because they did it. Is that all right? Stopping there.